So 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. (laughs) So this is the Lord speaking to uh, Elisha. And Elisha gives this word to this young man, a, uh, a trainee. He is being trained up in the ministry. And he gives them this assignment. It's a, it's, it's a big assignment, but he entrusts this to him. He is to go to where Jehu is, separate him from his peers, as he was serving as commander of the army of Israel, and anoint him as king. And then once you do that, and once you say these words, you need to run. You need to flee. You need to shut the door, and you need to go. You see, this was a dangerous mission. Elisha wasn't just sending him on some little mission, a cakewalk, something that was easy. He sent him off to do something that was very difficult and was very dangerous. You see, there was a king in Israel. His name is Joram. And so this would mean that as this young man is going to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel that he himself would put himself in a difficult predicament. He himself could be looked at as some, someone who is involved in an act of treason, looking to overthrow the king's dynasty, you could say King Ahab's dynasty. As God's people, there are times when we are called onto uh, to speak truth, to something even if we will be thought to be opposing popular consent by the people or present-day evil to confront it. I love something I read the other day. It's a quote by C.S. Lewis, which he writes this, quote, When the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind, close quote. And isn't that true? This man would be the one that's looking like as if, appearing as if he had lost his mind when he's simply being obedient to follow through with the will of God, bringing forth God's word. So Elisha gives him this task, this assignment, and uh, he gives him the details, not many that we see here, just a simple act, anoint Jehu as the next king, and tell him and, and speak on behalf of God, Speak these words to him. Verse 4, as we continue. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commander of the army, uh, commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us all? And he said, to you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. 
And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Aijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. This man was very courageous. He follows through with the assignment that he was given by Elisha. He fulfills it. He goes to this specific location. And he interrupts this, uh, this briefing taking place with all the commanders of Israel's army. He singles out Jehu saying that he needed to give him a word that he was sent to deliver to him. And so Jehu willingly separated himself and made himself available to this young man. He entered into another room, and as he did, the young man poured the anointing oil on Jehu's head. And as he was pouring the oil on his head, he told him these words. He spoke these words to him. You can imagine the, the surprise uh, you know, in, on Jehu's face, number one, because of what was taking place, and we're going to also mention and go to another section of First uh, Kings uh, to give you a little bit more background on this. But he tells him as he's anointing his head, he says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. This has got to be very sobering, very humbling. To be told these words, you are being anointed as king over the Lord's people, the people of the Lord, over Israel. What a great responsibility. One that is not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken to glorify oneself, but honor the Lord. After all, they're, they're His people. But we need to also take into account that this was not the first time that Jehu was anointed to be king of Israel. Uh, hold your place there and go with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 15. says, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And this is Elijah, um, Elijah speaking. Uh, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint, or um, actually to um, Elijah, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel uh, Melah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So 
you know, a lot is going on there, but we can't miss that one portion in here where Elijah is given the task, the assignment to go anoint Jehu as king of Israel. This was some time earlier, and now it's finally coming to fruition. Now is the appointed time to assume the throne as God has willed. God's timing is always perfect, and we'll see how it all comes together, and it's confirmed that this is indeed time to rise up. As God chose, so he intervened, and this young man delivered the the very word of God. At this point, for Jehu, again, it's time for him to rise up. What the young man told him next was the reason why this anointing was done in secret and not done publicly. Because this young man continues in what he is telling Jehu. He says, And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Jehu had been anointed and assigned by the Lord to be used as God's instrument of judgment against the whole house of Ahab. Everyone was to perish, male, every male, whether free or a slave. And on top of that, he continues on and says, And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And then this young man, he opened the door and he fled. He ran. Now, is this what Elisha had told him to say? Well, we only have a a very short account of what he told him, right? So we don't know if if he told him all of this or it was in this moment that the Spirit led him to speak these things. But nonetheless, we know that this young man was definitely speaking as he was moved by the Lord. And how do we know that? Because these things actually came about. These things were true. We just don't have it recorded that Elisha told him specifically to say these things. Either way, the word was delivered. This this young man completed his mission. And as he was told by Elisha to do, he left. He fled. He told Jehu what he was to do, and he prophesied that Jezebel would not only die, but that she would be desecrated, having dogs eat her and not be buried. God's judgment at this point has been declared. And so we continue after he did this, verse 11, it says, When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. Very important details the Lord had included in this event. Something that took place in exchange between Jehu and his peers. And you can see this as being a common conversation that anyone would have with his friends, right? Initially, when they asked Jehu how it all went and why 
How did they refer to this, this young man? He was a, remember, he was a, he was a man of God. He was, he was one who was being brought up under Elisha uh, in the ministry of, of God. And they basically referred to him as one crazy dude. You know, what, what does this crazy dude have to do with you? Why did he come? What did he tell you? And Jehu kind of dismissed it at first. Well, you know. He said, you know, the fellow, you know his talk. Just like something uh, a guy would say, right? Well, you know. You know how it is. Seems um, like an easy thing to do among people who do not value the word of God. This actually happens within a family when the majority don't really believe in God's word. But in the world system of success and its definition of life, and a family member comes to know, and when a family member comes to know the salvation, comes to know salvation in Christ, things change. When you begin to study God's word, things begin to change. And they begin to see you in a different light. They kind of, at first, dismiss you. They think, well, you know, this is um, something that's going to come and go. It's um, kind of this, this time that this person is, is having and going to church and kind of just being religious. And so this person is easily dismissed within the family or among worldly friends as being hyper-religious or uh, a relig- being kind of nutty, a, a religious nut. Having no sense of reality is what they'll say. I don't know if you've experienced that. I've experienced it. In fact, I'm experiencing that right now. This is just ongoing. When, when you stand on the word of God, when you proclaim truth, this is exactly what happens. Other people can easily dismiss you as being any of the above or more. You, you've heard these, uh, the manner in which they, they refer to those who stand on truth and stand with the, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in, in Matthew... I was reminded of this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Listen, for those who do not read the word of God, they may, they may say that they know the word or, or they love God, but they, they do not study the word. They don't know this. When the world says, you know, God is love and he just wants everyone to get along and be at peace with each other. And then you read a verse like this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's baffling to the world, but it's true. Jesus goes on to say, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I was thinking about this. How it is that, you know, to follow the path of least resistance 
it's kind of easy. It's also really wide. It's really shallow. And the Bible says it leads to destruction. It leads to death. It's tougher to stand on the truth. We find out quickly how it is that even those in our own household will oppose us. They'll sometimes subtly try to undermine our faith, even our service unto the Lord. They don't understand how it is that we spend time in church serving, why it is that we spend time in church serving. And I can tell you that at some point you need to make up your mind. Who is it that you're going to serve? Whose heart is it that you're going to bless? Is it God's heart? Are you going to be consistent toward him or toward your family? Because sometimes what happens is we allow our family to take the place of God, idolize them, and seek their blessing above God's blessing. These verses that I just read, these very words of Christ, the one whom we profess to follow, the one that we profess we are disciples of, said these very things. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And these things happen. Again, I am well aware of it, as the word tells us, but I'm also one who is participating in that truth. And that takes place. But we need to choose who we are going to follow. I can tell you much more, but I think you know what the point is there. They dismiss this guy, this young guy that brought the word of God. Uh, Jehu said, you know the fellow in his talk. And the question is, what did he mean by saying this? Did he simply refer to him as a religious nut and dismiss him to his friends? He didn't really want to tell them. But remember that Jehu was anointed. Can you imagine coming out of that room? And he was telling him, well, you know. You know this fellow in his talk, and, and he's just dripping with oil. Jehu's fellow soldiers, his peers, the other commanders, did not buy what he told them, and they pressed him. You know, in, in our... You know, if we, if we had an exchange between friends, I would say, shut up, you're lying. Tell me what he said, right? That's what we would be saying. I know something else happened in there. And then he told him, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. One moment they were dismissing this young man and the next moment they realized he was a true prophet of God. They acknowledged what he said. They received what he said. They accepted what he said. And then they acted in a manner of agreeing with what he said. They spread out their garments. Just like the people spread out their garments before Jesus. As he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You see it was a statement of loyalty. It was a statement of support for Jehu as king. 
They recognized him as king and they blew the shafar and proclaimed Jehu is king. And so they finally got to what exactly what was done in that room and they, they received it. They acknowledged Jehu as king at that very moment. Verse 14, as we continue, it says, Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. How interesting. I, you know, as, as you consider the, the timing, how it was that the Lord had coordinated, coordinated these events, he coordinated, he coordinated these things, uh, these events in such a way that um, he basically allowed uh, Joram, having been wounded, to come to Jezreel um, to, to kind of heal from his wounds. And then he had Isaiah, who was very friendly with the king of Israel, to come and visit him. He had them both in the same place. At, the very at that very time, it was the moment that God chose to raise up Jehu, and Jehu accepted what God had told him through the young prophets. And so the, and in that same moment, these two kings come together in the same place. King Joram was recovering from these battle wounds in Jezreel, and Jehu set his plan in motion to come against the two kings, actually specifically against uh, the king of Israel. And he set a guard of those who declared their loyalty to him to ensure that no one got to Jezreel and warned the king that Jehu was coming. So Jehu mounted his chariot and he went to Jezreel. Verse 17. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> well, there was this watchman that was posted in Jezreel, and he reported that this company was approaching. And King Joram ordered that a horseman be sent to investigate and bring word back whether the company was coming in peace or not. And so as we read, the horseman went and he approached Jehu and he asked the question. Thus says the king, is it peace? And we see how it was that Jehu had answered. What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. 
The watchman reported this to the king, and the king sent another to do the same, and the same thing happened with the second horseman. Two men now fell in rank behind Jehu, and in so doing, they declared their loyalty and support for him. What do you have to do with peace? Fall in line. There is no peace right now. You know that. Is basically what he was telling these two horsemen. What peace? As the watchman reported the second horseman not returning, he also reported something else, which, again, it's just interesting. Just these, sometimes the details that we have in the Bible are, are sometimes they, they can be humorous, right? What if someone saw your driving and they said, that must be raw? You laugh because it might be similar, right? But they said, hey, that driving, it's like Jehu, for he is driving furiously. Apparently, his driving was a bit intense. Obviously, he was known for his driving. Maybe the man himself was intense, and it showed in everything he did, including the way he drove his chariot. But you know what? It's all because he drove it with purpose. That's why. He was getting from point A to point B, and he got there with intensity. But he was known for that. And this watchman, he, he reported, just imagine, he was reporting to the king, hey, he's driving furiously. He kind of drives like Jehu. I, I find that humorous. It's interesting that he said that. But, you know, what are you known for? Sometimes there's something unique about you. Very patient. Very resourceful. Um very honest. What, what are you known, known for? Hopefully something that glorifies the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? Everything that you do should be to the glory of God. So we should be serious about bringing glory to God, whether it be work, whether it be playing or hobbies or family, or maybe even driving. Right? It's with the intensity and seriousness that we have in the Lord. When it comes to living for the Lord, we must always move to glorify him. Verse 21, so they notice his driving, but uh, it goes on from there. Verse 21 says, Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Azziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart. And he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, 
how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth the, and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So that these two kings, at this point, once uh, the watchman had reported to King Joram what was taking place, no one was coming back. The two horsemen didn't come back. They basically fell in line behind uh, Jehu and his company. After all of this, the two kings, um, they, they mounted. They got into their chariots. They met Jehu at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, this is significant because this was the very place, um, uh, the very land um, of the man who was murdered so that Jezebel could hand over the property to her husband. Um, so it was a very, it was an evil thing to do. And this is the very location that they met up with Jehu. When they came face to face, King Joram asked Jehu if he came in peace. At this point, you could, it, 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 we can assume, it, it is strongly implied that King Joram did not think anything of Jehu coming. After all, he was his commander. He had been around for since the time of Ahab. And so he had served under the kingship the, of, of Israel for all this time. And so he didn't think anything of it. Jehu was coming. Perhaps he was coming to bring word. Something that had taken place. The condition of the, of the field, of the battlefield. But Joram was in for a rude awakening. Because Jehu was ready to confront and follow through with what the Lord had anointed him to do. And the throne he was to assume. Jehu was not there for any other reason than to glorify the Lord by obediently and courageously following through with what he was told to do. He took his role seriously and he confronted Joram. Very direct, very to the point, very bold. He didn't mince any words. He went directly to it. What peace can there be? You come in peace, what peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. What peace can there be? You know, the, the world tells us, you know, do you, you come in peace? Well, what, what peace do you want there to be? There's no peace. With the whorings of the world, with the idolatry, with the evil practices of the world, how can there be peace? How can there be peace when a person is in sin? I want peace. I desire for there to be calm. How can there be peace? You see, a man in sin is blind. Until he is confronted with his evil and its compromise by the Lord. I remember the time that I was confronted and my sin was exposed. And I, at that point, recommitted my life to the Lord. I was blind to it. I, I, I told you that the path of least resistance is really the path that that seemingly is easy, and yet it's a path of destruction. 
I wanted to be blind to sin. I wanted to be desensitized to any kind of conviction that would confront me. But when the Spirit of God and God's Word confronted me, I had a choice. I either allowed that conviction to lead me to repentance or I could continue in my sin. Once a man is confronted with his evil and his compromise by the word of God and by his spirit, he confesses and repents, then there is forgiveness of sins and you have a right place before God. By the very shed blood of Jesus Christ, who paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But if you don't accept that, then what tends to happen is a person flees. A person turns around and runs as fast as he can. You can only deal with conviction that is rejected for so long. A person who is not willing to do something, repent of that sin, can stay in church for only so long. At some point, they do the very same thing that Joram did. He got on those reins and he whipped them a little bit and he started running away. That's the heart of man. That's what we tend to do. And so he turned around and he started fleeing from Jehu. And he took his bow and he reared back with his full strength. And he is a marksman. You can can just look at this this arrow coming at Joram. and And he nailed him right in between his shoulder blades. He pierced his heart and he died that very moment. You think about God's arrow. You think about God's word. It is accurate. He is the perfect surgeon. As his word opens us up and exposes that which does not belong. He never misses his mark. God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. Sometimes we think that the accomplishment of his word means that it'll come about. Like what his word is speaking to us, we'll receive and then we'll respond to it. No. That is not what that verse says. What that verse says is it will never return void. In other words, it will either lead a person to repentance, to obedience, to glorifying the Lord, or or it'll serve as the very word that will testify against that person. One way or the other, it never returns void. It accomplishes what God intended for it to accomplish. We are responsible. We are going to be held accountable for what we know. But God, his word, never misses its mark. 
as he tried to escape and then accused Jehu, as he was leaving even, what, what did he say to the other king? Treachery, treachery. Even in that moment of turning around and trying to flee, as, as Jehu was rearing back with his bow and aiming the arrow, King Joram was accusing him just as the accuser of the brethren does to you and I, fleeing like a coward and then calling us names. That's what they do. But he was struck in his heart and he was killed. And then Jehu ordered Bidkar, his assistant, to throw Joram's body into Naboth's field as he remembered the word of the Lord that he would repay Ahab for what he did to Naboth in this very place. You see, Jehu at that point understood that he was being used as an instrument of judgment by God. And he remembered God's word and he said, cast it into the field. Cast him there. And he did. Verse 27, as we continue, says, When Isaiah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan, And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. And then there's a note in the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Isaiah began to reign over Judah. So when King Isaiah saw this whole thing going down, he, he fled. Immediately he saw, wow, you know, King Joram was just killed by Jehu. He was shot. He was tossed into this field. And so King Isaiah said, I'm out of here. And he started taking off. But Jehu and his company pursued him, shot him. He didn't die immediately, but he did so in Megiddo and was buried in Jerusalem in the city of David. Now, listen, even though Jehu was not specifically commanded by the Lord to kill Isaiah, remember that he was related to Ahab. Ahab was his grandfather. And remember that the word came to Jehu that God was going to cut off from, every, uh, from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And so even this king was included. Not only was Isaiah Ahab's grandson, but he also freely associated with evil and judgment was brought against him. But then there was this woman, Jezebel, and she got word that Jehu was in town. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murder of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet in the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah. 
the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. So Jezebel, she, um, she uh, fixes herself up. She's, she's vain. Even at this very moment, she's an unscrupulous woman. She has no moral principles whatsoever. She did this to demonstrate that she was, she was queen. She called out to Jehu in a manner that was demeaning. It spoke a lot just in this one statement that she made of him, how she referenced him, Zimri, murder of your master. Basically, this was calling him out as being a rebel. Zimri, you see, had assassinated King Basha of Israel, a commander of his army, of, of King Basha's army. But his reign, Zimri, that is, was short-lived. And Jezebel was implying that this would be true of you, Jehu. By implication, she was also referring to the fact that it was her father-in-law who ended the reign of Zimri. His short reign was ended by her father-in-law. And it would be the same again with Jehu. But her arrogance and pride was soon going to be brought down to the grave. Notice that Jehu didn't address her. He didn't respond to her. Seemingly, he didn't flinch. He simply called out, who's on my side? Who? That was all he said. He just called out. She looked out from the window and, and he called out. Is anyone in her presence on my side? Two or three eunuchs looked out. That was enough for Jehu to kind of discern that perhaps these two or three eunuchs were were on his side. And he said, throw her down. And they did. Immediately, they, they threw her down. And it was... Uh, it's very detailed. I mean, even talking about how as she hit the ground, the blood splattered on the wall, the blood splattered on the horses. The horses trampled her underfoot, crushing her. But these two or three eunuchs that were there who threw her out of the window, remember that they were serving her, but, but even in that moment, what was revealed was that they understood she was a wicked person. There was no peace. Is this not how we are to deal with sin? Throw it down. Kill it. Do not allow it to reign at all, not for one more second. For it will rule your life and put you in bondage to it, to serve it. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sin and peace cannot and do not coexist. In fact, <clears throat> I was reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Remember that, that by association, King Isaiah, as he came and, and was with Joram, was 
really accepting of whatever it was that Joram was doing. But this is what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So those are questions, of course, they're rhetorical questions. They're, they have an obvious answer. There, there's, no, there's no fellowship between the two. We, we cannot be a friend of the world. For if we have friendship with the world, James writes, it's enmity with God. We are either for the Lord or we are against him. And for those who are sitting on the fence, know that Satan owns the fence. There is no in-between. There's either on one side or the other. But if you do not deal with sin in this manner, then it will reign over your life and it will put you in bondage to it, for you will serve it. Well, Jezebel was thrown down, she was killed, she was trampled underfoot, she was desecrated, her body stomped by the horses, and Jehu was untroubled by this. In fact, at that very moment, he left, and what did he do? He was hungry, he was thirsty, he went and had something to eat, and he had something to drink. Do not mourn over the death of sin. Uh, For the wife of Lot, she looked back and she longed for that which she left. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. We must never long for that which we have been delivered from. That is sin. That is death. That is something that is of the old man. Jehu, he did not lose any sleep. He continued on. But he also acknowledged that she was the daughter of the king, and so he ordered that her body be buried, but it was too late, as we read. The dogs had eaten her, further desecrating her. God's word coming about, just as he had said, and God's judgment being brought forth through Jehu against Joram and Jezebel, against Ahab's house. And we will see next week as we cover chapter 10 how it is that Jehu follows through with God's judgment against a whole house of Ahab and his descendants. A lot of description there, but the point is taken. I think it's a very simple point to make and something that we should understand. The Lord's word was brought forth and it came to fruition exactly how he said it would. Always remember, as I said at the very beginning, God's character He is consistent. He may be long-suffering, but at some point, when he chooses, he does judge. And his judgment is perfectly executed in whatever way he chooses. We see around us the manner in which he chooses to judge. So if in sin, let us be quick to confess and repent. For that is our loving God. He made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For God wishes that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what he desires. And so cast off that which is not of the Lord and walk with him. 
in fellowship and communion with the Lord. That is what we ought to desire to bring glory to God. Father, we just praise you, Lord. We love you. And I do ask, Lord, that if there is any sin in our lives, Lord, that is, is there is, we have not repented of, Lord, that you bring that to our attention. Lord, may we understand that you have judged our sin already. And Lord, I, I would hope that we don't desire your discipline. Lord, we, we desire to be pleasing to you, to be glorifying to you. So I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and Lord, that you would help us to have clean hands and pure hearts before you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.